Good morning to you. Imagine for a moment a church that was founded by the Apostle Paul himself. Imagine that this church got the second largest investment of the Apostle Paul's time he gave to any congregation. Second largest investment of any time he spent in his entire apostolic career. Imagine that this church, in addition to this lengthy 18-month face-to-face time with the Apostle Paul, imagine this church receives not just one letter, not just two letters, not just three letters, but four separate letters that we know about of encouragement and exhortation to the situation in this congregation. Now, Imagine that two of those letters are are so powerful that they've been inspired by the Holy Spirit Himself and enshrined for all time in the Holy Scriptures itself. That's quite an investment. Now, imagine that after dispatching the Apostle Paul for 18 months of foundational investment, God then sends a man named Apollos to follow up. And Acts 18 tells us Apollos was an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. Apollos was not just eloquent. The Bible says he was fervent in spirit and he spoke boldly and he taught accurately concerning Jesus. He was a choice servant of Christ. And then after investing a long stint from Paul and along comes Apollos, God then seemingly sent the Apostle Peter to further mature this most blessed of congregations. Now what do you think a church with that much strategic investment would be alike. Now we'd probably guess it would be a church so blessed that it would be a a pillar of faith and, and a paragon of faithfulness. It would be unparalleled in its sterling witness. That would be our guess, wouldn't it? All right. So now I want you to imagine another church. Imagine this church is located on a strategic isthmus. And if you remember from high school geography, an isthmus is a narrow strip of land. A little narrow strip of land connecting larger areas that's surrounded by water. So this larger area of Macedonia is in the Peloponnesian Peninsula is connected at the isthmus of Corinth. So this church, this second church, because of this isthmus, the church is situated in one of the most vital venues in the ancient world. Uh, uh, Imagine this church is located at a great trade center boasting not just one, but two major ports. Very unusual in the ancient world to have... uh, If you were a major city, you had a major port. They had two of them. Very unusual. Um, I want you to understand that that the Mediterranean Sea... Uh, right in this area, when you wanted to take things from Macedonia, this huge commercial area, and you wanted to ship it over to uh, Asia Minor, you want to ship it to Africa, you didn't want to ship it around this because the Peloponnesian Peninsula was absolutely hazardous in the winter, and sailors would would not want to make that journey. It was laced with jagged coastline, and the winds were known to bring the ships in and destroy everyone, including their cargo. So hazardous was crossing this 250-mile Peloponnesian Peninsula that that they made a, a, a wonderful, ingenious idea. See, they were ancient, they weren't stupid. They said, let's avoid the 250 mile trip around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and let's instead, let's just go right here. 
let's go right here. And we'll put rollers. We'll put the small ships on rollers. Because remember, the Romans were very smart. And they put the ships on rollers and they would wheel those small ships and their cargo over to the other port, boop, drop them back in the water. Save 250 miles, a very hazardous journey in all that time. And then if you had a larger boat, you'd just bring your stuff uh, across here, down, and you'd drop all your stuff off. They'd take it across on porters. It would go to another ship there, and off it would go. It was fast. It was easy. Now, here's the thing. If your ship was being rolled, or your cargo was being turned over, well, you would be in the city for two or three days with a lot of time on your hands and nothing to do. You're a captain, and your ship is on wheels. Not a lot of captaining goes on at that moment. And so, as a result... Corinth became one of the most important ports in all of the ancient world. Now this church is, is located in a city that has a long history. It stretches all the way back to the Bronze Age. It goes back to about 1200 B.C. Uh, Corinth was formerly a powerful city in the Achaean League. This is Achaia right here. Uh, Macedonia down here is Achaia. And, and they were the sort of main city of, of Achaia, of the Achaean Defense League. And it refused to bow its knee. When Rome started to come up and Greece started to come down, and Rome was on the ascend, and, and Greece was on the descend, and the Achaean League had kept itself safe, and Corinth was one of its double-harbored, double-barrel great cities. It said, we're not bowing our knee to some Roman upstart. And that was a massive miscalculation, my friend. Because that ancient civilization of Corinth that boasted going back to, to 1200 B.C., well, Rome dispatched a general, and his name was Lucius Mummius, and he overcame the defenses of Corinth, and he burned the city to the ground. Rome wanted to prove a point. You don't stand in the way of an ascendant Rome. To show the world that point, Mummius executed all the males in the entire city. And he sold all the women and children into slavery, and he burned the town to the ground. And that is the way that it stayed. For 100 years, it was just a ruined, vacant, desolate, uninhabited wreck. Until a very smart emperor, Julius Caesar, he decided, you know what? I need that port back. So I'm going to rebuild that city and I'm going to seed it with people loyal to me. He made it a colony. Not every city was a colony. A colony was an intentional movement of Rome of people to a place loyal to Rome itself. And see, Rome's population under Caesar had grown so much that he needed a release valve. He needed to get some of these people out of there because what if they rioted? Too many people. And, and the people that he least wanted were, were two groups. He least wanted all of these uh, poor citizens of the freedman class, of people that were slaves, but they had purchased their way out of slavery. And he thought they might rise up because they were still pretty low on the totem pole. And he had all these Roman legionnaires who were retiring. And, and they, didn't, they needed a job. And their main job skill was conquering people. <laughs> and he did the math and said, you need to live somewhere else. And so he developed a colony in Corinth. And so uh, you've got these former soldiers and, and you've got these former slaves and they're now Roman citizens and they're all moving at the emperor's bidding to a city called Corinth. And, and it's much like the waves of European immigrants who came here, they came to Ellis Island. Why did they come? They come because they wanted a new life they came because they wanted a better life. They thought this was their chance to move forward. Well, uh, Corinth uh, is a city 
that had been desolate for a century, so it is a, a new city. And it had no rigidly stratified social aristocracy because everybody that moved there was new. You couldn't say my granddaddy's granddaddy's granddaddy has always been in the court in Corinth because it was all wiped out. And so if you moved there, you could, you could move on up. It was the Jeffersons writ large. Everybody could move on up. If you would hustle, you could make it in Corinth. It was like no other place in the world in that day. So this new city uh, was young. It was pulsating with all these new emigres. Uh, it had been founded in 44 B.C., and it was now 55 A.D. when Paul writes. So only 100 years, the city has gone from no one to up to 400,000 people crowded in a little bit of acreage on Anisimus. Wow, that's a big change. Now, the area around Corinth was very fertile, and it was very productive. Um, how many of you have ever heard of a, of a current it is a you know, black currant. You add that to your baking. Currant is the word Corinth. It is the grapes of Corinth. So fecund was the area around this prosperous place with two ports that they had their own kind of grape that we still import and export. So get a picture of revived Corinth. It is a young rapidly expanding city. It pulsated with the dynamism of enthusiasm owing to its strategic location, and it quickly became exceedingly wealthy in a very short period of time. It became a commanding commercial center. In fact, Corinth became what we would call today a destination city. It boasted an outdoor theater. Remember, the city's only 100 years old. It boasted an outdoor theater that seated 20,000 people. And so from its confines, Corinth began to host something called the Isthmian Games. And those were the second most important athletic event in all of the ancient world. The only one more well-known than the Isthmian Games were the Olympic Games. And people would come from all over the empire to, to spend some time and see this great event. There was track and wrestling and boxing and chariot races, and it was all the things that you would come to bet on and, and see. Every other year, Many people would gather from far away to come see these things at Corinth. Corinth was a destination city for other reasons as well. It was world famous for its immorality. It was world famous for its immorality. Uh, Corinth had the greed of Wall Street and the wealth of Silicon Valley, but it had the morals of Vegas on a three-day weekend. Or maybe the French Quarter of New Orleans in Mardi Gras. And that was every day. Every day was, was like spring break at Cabo San Lucas or South Padre Island. That was Corinth. It was a destination place. When you arrived at Corinth and you sailed in and you came to the port, um, you would see rising like a towering beacon some 1,900 feet above you. South of the city was a, was a central seminal sanctuary. And this temple had a thousand priestesses, and they served as sacred prostitutes. They were called the Heriodulai, and they were world famous. They were selected because they were considered the most beautiful women in all the world. And each night, these Heriodulai would descend those 1,900 feet. They would come down the mountain. They would go into the city. They would offer their priestly services to the citizens and mostly to the foreigners who came for this purpose. Now, in addition to the grand temple of Aphrodite, the city was also a temple to Apollo. And Apollo is the god of music, song, and poetry. 
sex, drugs, and rock and roll, in case you weren't paying attention. That's Apollo. Apollo was seen as the ideal for male beauty. And so in this city, there were many nude statues of Apollo in various poses uh, of virility to inspire worshipers of the priests of Apollo, who themselves were, were male prostitutes. And so ancient Corinth was, a, was really an epicenter of homosexuality in the Roman Empire. When Paul writes his graphic description of human depravity in Romans 1, where is he standing, friends? He's writing from Corinth. He is writing what is in front of him. Now, the income of this city, based on revenues that we've seen in records, is a chief contributor to the overall bottom line of Corinth were those two temples and the great amount of prostitution. It was a major source. I mean, think about it. You've got the every other year's Olympic-level games. You've got the city's two ports. And, and yet, what's the main driver of their economy? Prostitution. All right, friends. This practice of these uh, priests, coupled with the moral looseness characteristic of a port city robustly bustling with a transient population, it gave Corinth an unsavory reputation known the world over from, from Africa to Asia to Europe. And pleasure seekers would come to spend their money on a holiday for morality. That's why you'd come to Corinth. Now the city is stocked full of sailors and merchants and sports enthusiasts who are many miles away from their wives and girlfriends. And they're in a den of sin unrivaled in the ancient world. And so the word Corinth became a byword for depravity. The Romans turned the city's name into a verb. And so to Corinthianize meant to lead an immoral life. He's going to go out and Corinthianize. Don't let him marry your daughter. To hire a young woman. They would say, I'm going to hire a Corinthian girl. It meant they were going to hire a call girl. Uh, to, to call a young woman a Corinthian was a huge insult. It was to uh, impunge upon her moral character. And, and so, friends, hearing all this, the church we first imagined with Paul and Apollos and Peter is not imaginary. It's a real church. And, 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 and the church that we just spoke about in this place, this den of sin, this place of wealth and rapidity and, and immorality, that's a real place. And, friends, they're the same place. It's the same church. It's important for us to remember that God raised up a church in the den of sin. No place is unworthy of grace. Now, what would a church look like if it was located in a cultural milieu that was ultra-wealthy and hypersexualized? What would a church look like if it was located in a milieu that was ultra-wealthy and hypersexualized. Well, the answer is it's messy. In fact, the theme of our tour through Corinthians is this God's messy grace project. God's messy grace project transforming worldly sinners into heavenly saints. That's going to be the title of our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, you may be saying, well, how messy was this church? It was a church, right? All right, try and put this in perspective. You ready? If you were God, if you were God, how would you respond to a church who embraced the wisdom of the world and rejected the wisdom of God's Word? 
How would you, if you were God, if you were God, how would you correct your children who are not ashamed of committing acts so perverse that even the heathens reject it? If you were God, how would you relate to your followers who saw no problem dragging other brothers before the pagan courts to get their way? If you were God, how would you rebuke a church who routinely turned the Lord's Supper into a drunken stupor? If you were God, how would you deal with believers who misuse their spiritual gifts to impress their friends instead of serving the needs of God's people? If you were God, how would you respond to a church that it is often said to go there that their meetings do more harm than good? That's all true of the Corinthian church as we read through the book of Corinthians. Now you and I, if we looked at that, we might do some pragmatic math and we might say, you know what we should do? We should just send a tactical airstrike and wipe those hopeless folks off the map and we'll start again with some better believers because those folks are pretty beleaguered. But not God. God didn't give up on them. God didn't beat up on them. God wrote a letter to them. A letter we are going to spend the next several months unpacking together. Friends, there is probably no New Testament church whose cultural situation more closely resembles the American church in 2019 than the Corinthian church of AD 55. Amen? We, like they, are fabulously wealthy by historical and indeed global standards. We, like they, live in a sex-soaked society where we can't so much as sell soap without some kind of model and their innuendo. We, like they, can very easily be a church preoccupied with who we are instead of whose we are. Amen? We, like they, can be a church obsessed with our rights as an individual and yet forget our responsibilities to the other individuals God has sent next to us. 1 Corinthians has much to say to the modern church. Perhaps no other book in all the Bible does more to explain the grace of God, the lordship of Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit in a needy place. Perhaps no other book is as practical in its outworking of the gospel, establishing what is ethical in a world that is reflexively corruptible. What a wonderful book God has given us in chronicling God's messy grace project. How God patiently and relentlessly turns worldly sinners into heavenly saints. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians. We had a long introduction. The sermon's briefer from here on out. You're getting worried. I can feel it. Turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. It's on page 1210 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, page 1210. And uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together today. Lord, I've tried to set the table so we wouldn't just walk into this book and see all the chaos and all the sin and go, what's the deal? How is this church like this? The amazing thing is you put a church in a place like that. And it was going to take a lot of discipleship to pull out all of the junk of the culture and push in all the wealth of the Scripture. It's going to take a lot of patient instruction and careful guidance. It's going to take a lot of yielding to the new man that we are in Christ, or they will be overcome by the old man that they left before they knew Christ. And so you call us to crucify the flesh, to take up our cross and follow you. 
Lord, help us as we go through Corinthians to not tut-tut and finger-wag, but to say, but by the grace of God, go our church and our family and our lives. Lord, may we learn the lessons You have put in Scripture speaking to that church, but then to all churches of all times. May we learn from their mistakes that we might not have to repeat them, that we might be able to be overcomers instead of being overcome. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians together. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace God has given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Their problem wasn't they were insufficiently gifted. Their problem was they were insufficiently spirit-led. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christians do. We wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This church was going to be ultimately guiltless, and yet you read it and you think it's hopeless. God is faithful. It doesn't say they are. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. How does the Apostle Paul begin his inspired, instructive, corrective letter to this errant church? Well, he doesn't begin it with a series of cascading invectives. Bad, bad, bad. Naughty, naughty, naughty. You would think that's how he'd begin it. He begins it with four gentle but central reminders that we are going to quickly cover in our remaining moments together this morning. Now, if you've read Paul's letters, you're going to see that Paul will often tip his hand in the greeting portion of his letter as to the nature of what he wants to talk about in that epistle. And he does such in 1 Corinthians quite clearly. Against a backdrop of individualism, Paul grounds us in our unity in Christ. Against a backdrop of, of pretension and jockeying for position within the congregation, Paul makes repeated calls to humility within the body of Christ. Against a relentless cultural onslaught of sexual immorality, Paul calls us to personal holiness. And against a creeping feeling of hopelessness at the depth of corruption within the congregation, Paul reminds us of eternal certainties so we don't lose heart. Well, the first thing we must understand is point one today on your outlines. Point one today on your outlines. We must understand the humility we ought to possess because of the grace of Christ. The first thing you need to understand as a Christian, in a messed up place where you're not always batting a thousand, you must understand the humility we ought to possess because of the grace of Jesus. Listen to how Paul opens the letter. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. So it's Paul and Sosthenes. That's the first thing he wants us to think about. Now, who are they? Paul was once the church's most strident persecutor. 
but he was miraculously and mercifully saved. And he, when he was maniacally en route to round up and root out Christians in Damascus, the grace of God stopped Paul dead in his tracks, didn't it? He was once blind, but God blinded him to evil and gave him sight to see the risen Christ. His eyes were opened to the grace of God. And and by the will of God, Paul became the great apostle of God to the Gentiles. Though he was formerly a persecutor, he was formerly a murderer. The second man is a man named Sosthenes. Sosthenes. And most likely, this is the very same Sosthenes mentioned as the synagogue ruler in Corinth when we meet the church in Corinth in the book of Acts. If so, that means that Sosthenes was the man when Paul came, Paul who was a persecutor and a murderer who became an apostle and a preacher, Paul came with the gospel to Corinth and there was a man who tried to stop him. He was the synagogue ruler and his name was Sosthenes. And Sosthenes persecuted Paul and took him before the proconsul of Achaia, a man named Galileo, and he said, this guy's a bad guy, make it stop. And so The two people mentioned at the beginning of the letter are trophies of grace. Sosthenes, the former synagogue ruler and gospel opposer of Acts 18, also apparently encountered the grace of God. And God turned this former persecutor into a glowing brother. Now, we come to the audience of the book. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, that moral sewer. To the church of God that is in Corinth. If there ever was a congregation plucked from Satan's playground, it was the saints sifted from the sewer of ancient Corinth. Amen? The church God planted in the den of sin. To the church of God that is in Now these objects of God's mercy, these trophies of God's grace, Paul, Sosthenes, and all the Corinthian Christians, the Bible says they have two divine blessings. They were all three possessing. The Bible says in verse 3, grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. Now, Now Paul takes the common Greek greeting and the common Jewish greeting and does something uncommon and makes them a a new Christian greeting. Uh, He fuses them together and he infuses them with new meaning. Instead of the Greek typical greeting, which is uh, kare, greetings, Paul uses charis, grace. And then he takes the Hebrew concept of shalom, peace, and he takes shalom and says there is no peace without Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, there can be no peace with God and there can be no peace from God until we first experience the grace of God. Salvation and all of its benefits, the Bible teaches, are by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord, Jesus Christ. Then Paul hints a little bit about their gifting. The gifts that the Corinthian church are so enormously proud of. The gifts that they make loud of. The gifts that they are shouting over one another in fleshly displays of peacocking one uxmanship in the congregation instead of doing things decently and in order to be mutually edifying and God-glorifying. And Paul points to those uncommon gifts and he emphasizes the common grace of their common giver. Listen to verse 4. And I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you 
in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge. Yeah, you got gifts, and where'd they come from? Jesus. What are they to be used for? Jesus. That's not how they saw it, though. They saw how special they were. Friends, we must understand the implicit humility we ought to possess because of the grace of God. God opposes the proud, and He gives grace to the... Yeah. Not to the wonderful. To the humble. We must, number two, understand our essential unity in Christ. We must, we must understand our humility we must have as recipients of the grace of Christ and not think more highly of ourselves. But number two, we must understand our essential unity in Christ because this body is being torn all apart over all kinds of things because it's a me-first type of congregation in a Jesus-first ought-to-be situation. The Corinthians' carnality led them naturally to point at their individuality. But the Holy Spirit moved the pen of Paul to emphasize not their individuality, but their unity. Their unity in Jesus. Listen again to verse 2. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see, in a pagan culture that elevated the individual, the Spirit of God elevates Jesus. Nine times in these opening nine verses, Jesus is specifically referenced. He is the central thing in the hello section of the letter. And he ought to be the central thing in any church, especially a messed up church trying to not be messed up. Now, the Corinthians probably didn't like all of this intro because in the intro, Paul puts them on par with every other brother and sister everywhere else in the entire empire. Literally, the Bible says, in every place that calls upon the name of Jesus Christ, both their Lord and yours. How special are they? Only special because they're Christ. That's as far as they're special. Huh. Friends, our allegiance is to Jesus. Jesus lived to seek us. And He died to redeem us. And He's risen to lead us. And so our allegiance is to Jesus. There is just one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. The primary hierarchy in God's kingdom is this. We are all subjects of the King. That's the primary hierarchy of Scripture. We are all subjects of the King. So as such, we must understand our essential unity in Christ. We belong to Jesus because we were bought with a price. And we belong to one another because we're now brothers and sisters. You are the family of God because you are adopted by the Father. And that makes you no better than your neighbor. It just makes you a recipient of the grace of God. The Corinthians didn't understand that. They had a me-first attitude. Now friends, this unity, this humility, it ought to make us live differently. Which is point three, you see. We must understand God's calling upon us to be holy like Christ and to be holy for Christ. Let's say that again. We must understand God's calling to be holy like Christ and to be holy for Christ. Look at verse 2 and you'll see this to be true. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified 
in Christ Jesus. Right now, the Corinthian church, as messed up as it is, is positionally sanctified in Jesus. But they're also called to be saints together with all those in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and all. There's a positional truth and there's a progressive unfolding. Positionally, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are already a saint. And saints are not dead people beatified, and they're not living people who are uniquely holy. Rather, all who are in Christ are sanctified by Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus Himself took our condemnation. To tell us die was His cry, and that means it is finished. There's no more for you to atone for. If you put your faith in Christ, He did it all. All to Him I owe. So what is true uh, uh, po positionally of all Christians ought to become more and more true progressively for all Christians. The longer we are in Christ, the more the old man in us ought to be crucified out of us, and the more Christ who's in us ought to be seen by those around us. That's the way it's supposed to work. It wasn't working that way for the Corinthians. Something was short-circuited, and Paul wanted to make a, an amendment. Now, it is true for you and me as Christians. The devil wants to get down on you that, that, that you're not who you wish you were in Christ. You're not the victorious Christian you wish you were in Christ. And he's always going to throw up whatever it is that you're struggling with. And I don't know what you're struggling with, but there's a sin that easily entangles. And if you beat it, he'll find a new one because he is a master deceiver. He's always going to have something. He's always going to throw that in your face. But you know what's true for you and I? If God is positionally made us saints and progressively making us more like Christ when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, I may not be the man I want to be, but by God's grace, I'm no longer the man I used to be. And 20 years of Jesus in me has produced a different Sean. Five more years of Jesus in me has produced a different Sean. Kim is clapping a lot. She's really looking forward to what 50 years will look like because she's like, he's got a long way to go. Nobody knows you like Jesus and your spouse. Anyway, uh, friends, People ought to be able to watch our life and doctrine closely that our progress is evident to all. You ought to know Jesus better and you ought to shine for Jesus more the longer you're with Jesus. That's the way it's supposed to be. We are holy by position and we ought to become more holy by possession. Because to be holy is to be like Christ. He says, be holy for I I'm holy. Be like me, the author and perfecter of your salvation. Now, that means we're going to need to learn to take up our cross and deny ourselves. And he said that, didn't he? That means that we're going to have to have the righteousness of Christ become visible in a world that is sin-ravaged and miserable. And if you do, you'll be a perfume in a room where everywhere else there's a stench in the trench. Amen? Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, who are called to be saints together. Not just the super-Christians, not just the pastors, not just the elders. Every single believer in every church everywhere that's actually born again ought to become more and more like this. And Paul says, I write to the church. And that's the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia combines the preposition ek, which means out of, and the verb kaleo, to call. It means to call out of. The church is called out of sin. And it's called out of its condemnation. And it's called into redemption. It's called into adoption. It's called into sanctification, friends. 
We are positionally sanctified the moment we trust in Jesus. So Paul can write to these sinners, to the church of God in Corinth, those who are right now sanctified in Christ Jesus. Even though they're a mess, they're still blessed positionally. And yet he can also write to people that ought to be progressively sanctified, called to be saints. And right now they're not living up to their their calling. So that's why God sends this letter. Now, for the saints in the sewer of ancient Corinth, and for you and I in the labyrinth of modern Sodom, we're not always living in the victory that God has for us. And so when we find ourselves in the pigsty with with muck and yuck in our eye, like the prodigal son eating pea pods, we must remember God's messy discipleship project. God's project is not over. If you're not winning in every way, God's not done in every way. So don't you give up. Positionally, you're fine. Progressively, you need His grace. And that brings us to point four. We must understand the eternal certainty we have through Christ Jesus. Please understand, Christian, the eternal certainty you possess if you have given your life to Jesus. With rock-ribbed confidence in the faithfulness of Jesus to keep us and to keep His Word. And remember, it's impossible for Him to lie. We can be confident in this, that He who began a good work in us will carry it on to the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6. Colossians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1.7 in our passage puts it like this. 1 Corinthians 1.7. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, for, for Jesus' return, Jesus will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus. You will arrive at heaven guiltless because of the work of Christ. God is faithful. You know what that means? You might not be. You probably won't be. The Corinthian church wasn't. But when they met Jesus face to face, His blood gave them robes of righteousness. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. One day you and I will be all that God designed for us and desires of us. That was true of the Corinthians and they're pretty awful when you read the book. And therefore, it's true for you and me too. And I think if people read the book, we're kind of awful too. (laughs) One day, God will perfect us. What is true positionally and progressively will one day be true entirely and eternally. Amen. But right now, we live here. And we wait with all creation, the Bible says, in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. God has a greater plan for His people. Don't you forget it. It's a certainty. Maranatha, the Bible says. You know what that means? Come, Lord Jesus. Christians used to end their services with Maranatha. Now we don't know what it means. Come, Lord Jesus. Read this passage. He's writing to this messed up church, and he talks about the fact that at the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, because God is faithful. Maranatha, let's pray. Father, let us humble ourselves 
For you oppose the proud and you give grace to the humble. All we have and all we are comes from you. It comes from your hand. It comes from your grace. Our gifting, our jobs, our tongues, our health, our wealth, our intelligence, everything comes from you. In you, we live and move and have our breathing. And you can take all that away in an instant. You are the giver of all good gifts. And so, Lord, give us a humility that is right before you, the living God. Lord Jesus, please help us to remember our essential unity. Our flesh jockeys for individuality. Our our, our loyalties get divided along party lines. Whatever those lines are. Some follow Paul. Some follow Apollos. We like this gift and that gift. And usually it's whatever is our gift. But we are told that we are your body. The eye is not more important than the hand. Even the most eagle-eyed or deftly adept hand is nothing without you as the head. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We can bear no fruit that lasts unless we abide in you. So Lord, may we be like our Lord and subordinate our will to thy will. May we love you by loving one another intentionally, repeatedly, and beautifully. For the world shall know us by our love. Holy Spirit, help us to dwell in modern Sodom in a revived sewer in our corner of modern Corinth. Help us to be holy as You were holy. Help us to live up to progressively what is already true positionally and will, praise God, be entirely true eternally. Help us not to use the members of our body to sin this week, but rather as our spiritual act of worship to turn the members of our body over to You. Our tongue, our eyes, our heart, our hands, our affections, our reflections, our intentions. May we give them to You. May we keep in step with the Spirit. May we not grieve the Spirit. May we listen to Your still small voice instead of the chorus before us saying, do this. The world squeezing us into its mold and the flesh yearning to be craved and the itch to be relieved. Lastly, O Eternal Father, while... We live in this world. May we not be temporal and territorial in our focus, but may we be eternal and kingdom-minded. Imprint eternity on our hearts. Let us biblically long for Your return. Teach us to number our days as Moses writes in the Psalms. Help establish the work of our hands because night is coming when no man can work. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, but remember that one day there will be a harvest. That you reward the faithful. But we're not always called to be successful. You called Jeremiah. You called Isaiah. And they were faithful, but not temporally successful. And you would say, well done, good and faithful servant to each. And you knew that you were setting them before a stiff-necked generation who would not see and would not hear, but they still needed to be told. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us a holy boldness for Jesus, that we would share truth with grace and offer grace with truth. May the gospel be on our lips. May Christ be on our hearts. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.